Hello, and welcome to Storytime's Audio Advent Calendar. I'm so glad you could make it. Before we start tonight's stories, I'd like to remind you that a lot of these stories are over 100 years old. This means that they are very much of their time and can use words and phrases that, by today's standards, could be considered offensive or, at best, strange to our modern ears. I have done my very best to change words or phrases that are obviously needlessly offensive. However, I cannot guarantee that I have found them all, or am even aware of the possible origins of some. And so, if what I read does have negative connotations that causes offence, I apologise and direct you to the author of the works being read. If you would like to support this audio production, I would really appreciate it if you would donate to my Patreon. The link is in the show description, or you can type into your browser patreon.com forward slash Martin Lovell. And now, let's see what's behind door number six. The Steadfast Tin Soldier by Hans Christian Andersen There were once five and twenty tin soldiers. They were brothers, for they had all been made out of the same old tin spoon. They all shouldered their bayonets, held themselves upright, and looked straight before them. Their uniforms were very smart-looking, red and blue, and very splendid. The first thing they heard in the world, when the lid was taken off the box in which they lay, were the words... Tin soldiers! These words were spoken by a little boy, who clapped his hands for joy. The soldiers had been given to him because it was his birthday, and now he was putting them out upon the table. Each was exactly like the rest to a hare, except one who had but one leg. He had been cast last of all, and there had not been quite enough tin to finish him, but he stood as firmly upon his one leg as the others upon their two. And it was he whose fortunes became so remarkable. On the table where the tin soldiers had been set up were several other toys, but the one that attracted most attention was a pretty little paper castle. Through its tiny windows, one could see straight into the hall. In front of the castle stood little trees clustering round a small mirror which was meant to represent a transparent lake. Swans of wax swam upon its surface and it reflected back their images. All this was very pretty, but prettiest of all was a little lady who stood at the castle's open door. She too was cut out of paper, but she wore a frock of the clearest gauze and a narrow blue ribbon over her shoulders, like a scarf, and in the middle of the ribbon was placed a shining tinsel rose. The little lady stretched out both her arms, for she was a dancer, and then she lifted one leg so high that the soldier quite lost sight of it. He thought that, like himself, she had but one leg. That would be just the wife for me, thought he, if she were not too grand. But she lives in a castle, 
while I only have a box, and there are five and twenty of us in that. It would be no place for a lady. Still, I must try to make her acquaintance. A snuff-box happened to be on the table, and he lay down at full length behind it, and here he could easily watch the dainty little lady, who still remained standing on one leg without losing her balance. When the evening came, all the other tin soldiers were put away in their box, and the people in the house went to bed. Now the playthings began to play in their turn. They visited, fought battles, and gave balls. The tin soldiers rattled in the box, for they wished to join the rest, but they could not lift the lid. The nutcrackers turned somersaults, and the pencil jumped about in a most amusing way. There was such a din that the canary woke and began to speak, and in verse too. The only ones who did not move from their places were the tin soldier and the lady dancer. She stood on tiptoe with outstretched arms, and he was just as persevering on his one leg. He never once turned away his eyes from her. Twelve o'clock struck. Crash! Up sprang the lid of the snuff-box. There was no snuff in it, but a little goblin. You see, it was not a real snuff-box, but a jack-in-the-box. Tin soldier, said the goblin, keep thine eyes to thyself. Gaze not at what does not concern thee. But the tin soldier pretended not to hear. Only wait, then. Till tomorrow, remarked the goblin. Next morning, when the children got up, the tin soldier was placed on the window sill, and whether it was the goblin or the winds that did it, all at once the window flew open, and the tin soldier fell head foremost from the third story to the street below. It was a tremendous fall. Over and over he turned in the air, till at last he rested his cap and bayonet sticking fast between the paving stones, while his one leg stood upright in the air. The maidservant and the little boy came down at once to look for him, but though they nearly trod upon him, they could not manage to find him. If the soldier had but once called, Here am I! They might easily enough had heard him, but he did not think it becoming to cry out for help, being in uniform. It now began to rain. Faster and faster fell the drops, until there was a heavy shower, and when it was over, two street boys came by. Look you, said one, there lies a tin soldier. He must come out and sail in a boat. So they made a boat out of an old newspaper and put the tin soldier in the middle of it, and away he sailed down the gutter while the boys ran along by his side, clapping their hands. All at once, the boat passed into a drain, and it became as dark as his own old home in the box. Where am I going now? thought he. Yes, to be sure, it is all that goblin's doing. Ah, if the little lady were but sailing with me in the boat, I would not care if it were twice as dark. Just then, a great water rat 
that lived under the drain darted suddenly out. Have you a passport? asked the rat. Where is your passport? But the tin soldier kept silence and only held his bayonet with a firmer grasp. The boat sailed on, but the rat followed. Whew, how he gnashed his teeth and cried to the sticks and straws. Stop him! Stop him! He hasn't paid toll! He hasn't shown his passport! But the stream grew stronger and stronger. Already the tin soldier could see daylight at the point where the tunnel ended. But at the same time he heard a rushing, roaring noise, at which a bolder man might have trembled. Just where the tunnel ended, the drain widened into a great sheet that fell into the mouth of a sewer. It was as perilous a situation for the soldier as sailing down a mighty waterfall would be for us. He was so near it that he could not stop. The boat dashed on, and the tin soldier held himself so well that no one might say of him that he so much as winked an eye. Three or four times the boat whirled round and round. It was full of water to the brim and must certainly sink. The tin soldier stood up to his neck in water. Deeper and deeper sank the boat. Softer and softer grew the paper. And now the water closed over the soldier's head. He thought of the pretty little dancer whom he should never see again, and in his ears rang the words of the song. Wild adventure, mortal danger, be thy portion, valiant stranger. The paper boat parted in the middle, and the soldier was about to sink when he was swallowed by a great fish. Oh, how dark it was, darker even than in the drain, and so narrow. But the tin soldier retained his courage. There he lay at full length, shouldering his bayonet as before. To and fro swam the fish, turning and twisting and making the strangest movements, till, at last, he became perfectly still. Something like a flash of daylight passed through him, and a voice said, Tin soldier! The fish had been caught, taken to market, sold and bought, and taken to the kitchen, where the cook had cut him with a large knife. She seized the tin soldier between her finger and thumb and took him to the room where the family sat, and where all were eager to see the celebrated man who had travelled in the maw of a fish. But the tin soldier remained unmoved. He was not at all proud. They set him upon the table there. But how could so curious a thing happen? The soldier was in the very same room in which he had been before. He saw the same children... The same toys stood upon the table, and among them the pretty dancing maiden, who still stood upon one leg. She too was steadfast. That touched the tin soldier's heart. He could have wept tin tears, but that would not have been proper. He looked at her, and she looked at him, but neither spoke a word. And now one of the little boys took the tin soldier and threw him into the stove. He gave no reason for doing so, but no doubt the goblin in the snuff-box had something to do with it. The tin soldier stood now in a blaze of red light, 
The heat he felt was terrible, but whether it proceeded from the fire or from the love in his heart, he did not know. He saw that the colours were quite gone from his uniform, but whether that had happened on the journey or had been caused by grief, no one could say. He looked at the little lady, she looked at him, and he felt himself melting. Still, he stood firm as ever, with his bayonet on his shoulder. Then suddenly, the door flew open, the wind caught the dancer, and she flew straight into the stove to the tin soldier, flashed up in a flame, and was gone. The tin soldier melted into a lump, and in the ashes the maid found him the next day, in the shape of a little tin heart. While of the dancer, nothing remained save the tinsel rose, and that was burned as black as a coal. The End Little Wolf's Wooden Shoes by Francois Coppet Once upon a time, so long ago that everybody has forgotten the date, in a city in the north of Europe, with such a hard name that nobody can ever remember it, there was a little seven-year-old boy named Wolf, whose parents were dead, who lived with a cross and stingy old aunt, who never thought of kissing him more than once a year, and who sighed deeply whenever she gave him a bowl full of soup. But the poor little fellow had such a sweet nature that in spite of everything, he loved the old woman, although he was terribly afraid of her and could never look at her ugly old face without shivering. As this aunt of Little Wolf was known to have a house of her own and an old woollen stocking full of gold, she had not dared to send the boy to a charity school. But, in order to get a reduction in the price, she had so wrangled with the master of the school, to which Little Wolf finally went, that this bad man, vexed at having a pupil so poorly dressed and paying so little, often punished him unjustly, and even prejudiced his companions against him, so that the three boys, all sons of rich parents, made a drudge and laughing stock of the little fellow. The poor little one was thus as wretched as a child could be, and used to hide himself in corners to weep whenever Christmas time came. It was the schoolmaster's custom to take all his pupils to the midnight mass on Christmas Eve, and to bring them home again afterward. Now, as the winter this year was very bitter, and as heavy snow had been falling for several days, all the boys came well bundled up in warm clothes, with fur caps pulled on over their ears, padded jackets, gloves and knitted mittens, and strong, thick-soled boots. Only Little Wolf presented himself shivering in the poor clothes he used to wear both weekdays and Sundays, and having on his feet only thin socks in heavy wooden shoes. His naughty companions, noticing his sad face and awkward appearance, made many jokes at his expense but the little fellow was so busy blowing on his fingers and was suffering so much with chilblains that he took no notice of them. So the band of youngsters, walking two and two behind the master, started for the church. It was pleasant in the church, which was brilliant with lighted candles, and the boys excited by the warmth 
took advantage of the music of the choir and the organ to chatter among themselves in low tones. They bragged about the fun that was awaiting them at home. The mayor's son had seen, just before starting off, an immense goose, ready stuffed and dressed for cooking. At the alderman's home, there was a little pine tree with branches laden down with oranges, sweets and toys. And the lawyer's cook had put on her cap with such care as she never thought of taking unless she was expecting something very good. Then they talked too of all that the Christ child was going to bring them, of all he was going to put in their shoes, which, you might be sure, they would take good care to leave in the chimney place before going to bed. And the eyes of these little urchins, as lively as a cage of mice, were sparkling in advance over the joy they would have when they awoke in the morning and saw the pink bag full of sugar plums, the little lead soldiers ranged in companies in their boxes, the menageries smelling of varnished wood, and the magnificent jumping jacks in purple and tinsel. Alas, little Wolf knew by experience that his old miser of an aunt would send him to bed supperless, but with childlike faith and certain of having been, all the year, as good and industrious as possible, he hoped that the Christchild would not forget him. And so he, too, planned to place his wooden shoes in good time in the fireplace. Midnight mass over, the worshippers departed, eager for their fun, and the band of pupils, always walking two and two, and following the teacher, left the church. Now, in the porch, and seated on a stone bench, set in the niche of a painted arch, a child was sleeping. A child in a white woollen garment, but with his little feet bare, in spite of the cold. He was not a beggar, for his garment was white and new, and near him on the floor was a bundle of carpenter's tools. In the clear light of the stars, his face, with its eyes closed, shone with an expression of divine sweetness, and his long, curling, blonde locks seemed to form a halo about his brow. But his little child's feet, made blue by the cold of this bitter December night, were pitiful to see. The boys, so well clothed for the winter weather, passed by quite indifferent to the unknown child. Several of them, sons of the notables of the town, however, cast on the vagabond looks in which could be read all the scorn of the rich for the poor, of the well-fed for the hungry. But Little Wolf, coming last out of the church, stopped, deeply touched, before the beautiful sleeping child. Oh dear, said the little fellow to himself, this is frightful. This poor little one has no shoes and stockings in this bad weather, and, what is still worse, he has not even a wooden shoe to leave near him tonight while he sleeps, into which the little Christ child can put something good to soothe his misery. And carried away by his loving heart, Wolf drew the wooden shoe from his right foot, laid it down before the sleeping child, and, as best he could, sometimes hopping, sometimes limping with his sock wet by the snow, he went home to his aunt. "'Look at the good-for-nothing!' cried the old woman, full of wrath at the sight of the shoeless boy. "'What have you done with your shoe, you little villain?' Little Wolf did not know how to lie, 
So, although trembling with terror when he saw the rage of the old shrew, he tried to relate his adventure. But the miserly old creature only burst into a frightful fit of laughter. Aha! So my young gentleman strips himself for the beggars. Ha <laughs> ha! My young gentleman breaks his pair of shoes for a barefoot. Here is something new, forsooth. Very well, since it is this way, I shall put the only shoe that is left into the chimney place, and I'll answer for it that the Christ child will put in something tonight to beat you with in the morning, and you will have only a crust of bread and water tomorrow, and we shall see if the next time you will be giving your shoes to the first vagabond that happens along. And the wicked woman, having boxed the ears of the poor little fellow, made him climb up into the loft where he had his wretched cubbyhole. Desolate, the child went to bed in the dark and soon fell asleep, but his pillow was wet with tears. But behold, the next morning, when the old woman, awakened early by the cold, went downstairs, oh, wonder of wonders, she saw the big chimney filled with shining toys. Bags of magnificent bonbons and riches of every sort, and standing out in front of all this treasure was the right wooden shoe which the boy had given to the little vagabond. Yes, and beside it, the one which she had placed in the chimney to hold the bunch of switches. As little Wolf, attracted by the cries of his aunt, stood in an ecstasy of childish delight before the splendid Christmas gifts, shouts of laughter were heard outside. The woman and child ran out to see what all this meant, and behold, all the gossips of the town were standing around the public fountain. What could have happened? Oh, a most ridiculous and extraordinary thing. The children of the richest men in the town, whom their parents had planned to surprise with the most beautiful presents, had found only switches in their shoes. Then the old woman and the child, thinking of all the riches in their chimney, were filled with fear. But suddenly they saw the priest appear, his countenance full of astonishment. Just above the bench, placed near the door of the church, in the very spot where, the night before, a child in a white garment and with bare feet, in spite of the cold, had rested his lovely head, the priest had found a circlet of gold embedded in the old stones. Then, they all crossed themselves devoutly, perceiving that this beautiful sleeping child with the carpenter's tools had been Jesus of Nazareth himself, who had come back for one hour, just as he had been when he used to work in the home of his parents. And reverently, they bowed before this miracle, which the good God had done to reward the faith and the love of a little child. The End how the Good Gifts Were Used by Two By Howard Pyle This is the way that this story begins. Once upon a time, there was a rich brother and a poor brother, and the one lived across the street from the other. The rich brother had all of the world's gear that was good for him, and more besides. As for the poor brother, why, he had hardly enough to keep soul and body together, Yet he was contented with his lot, and contentment did not sit back of the stove in the rich brother's house, wherefore in this the rich brother had less than the poor brother. 
Now these things happened in the good old times, when the saints used to be going hither and thither in the world upon this business and upon that. So, one day, who should come travelling to the town where the rich brother and the poor brother lived, but St. Nicholas himself? Just beside the town gate stood the great house of the rich brother. Thither went the saint and knocked at the door, and it was the rich brother himself who came and opened it to him. Now, St. Nicholas had had a long walk of it that day, so that he was quite covered with dust and looked no better than he should. Therefore he seemed to be only a common beggar, and when the rich brother heard him ask for a night's lodging at his fine great house, he gaped like a toad in a rainstorm. What? Did the traveller think that he kept a free lodging house for beggars? If he did, he was bringing his grist to the wrong mill. There was no place for the likes of him in the house, and that was the truth. But yonder was a poor man's house across the street. If he went over there, perhaps he could get a night's lodging and a crust of bread. That was what the rich brother said, and after he had said it, he banged to the door and left St. Nicholas standing on the outside under the blessed sky. So now, there was nothing for good St. Nicholas to do but to go across the street to the poor brother's house, as the other had told him to do. Rap, tap, tap. He knocked at the door, and it was the poor brother who came and opened it for him. Come in, come in, says he. Come in and welcome. So, in came St. Nicholas, and sat himself down behind the stove, where it was good and warm, while the poor man's wife spread before him all that they had in the house. A loaf of brown bread, and a crock of cold water from the town fountain. And is that all that you have to eat? said St. Nicholas. Yes, that was all that they had. Then maybe I can help you to better, said St. Nicholas. So bring me hither a bowl and a crock. You may guess that the poor man's wife was not long in fetching what he wanted. When they were brought, the saint blessed one and passed his hand over the other. Then he said, Bowl be filled. And straight away the bowl began to boil up with a good rich meat potage until it was full to the brim. Then the saint said, Bowl be stilled and it stopped making the broth, and there stood as good a feast as man could wish for. Then St. Nicholas said, Crock be filled, and the crock began to bubble up with the best of beer. Then he said, Crock be stilled, and there stood as good a drink as man ever poured down his throat. Down they all sat, the saint and the poor man and the poor man's wife, and ate and drank till they could eat and drink no more, and whenever the bowl and the crock grew empty, the one and the other became filled at the bidding. The next morning, the saint trudged off the way he was going, but he left behind him the bowl and the crock, so that there was no danger of hunger and thirst coming to that house. Well, the world jogged on for a while, maybe a month or two, and life was as easy for the poor man and his wife as an old shoe. One day, the rich brother said to his wife, See now, luck seems to be stroking our brother over yonder the right way. 
I'll just go and see what it all means. So over the street he went and found the poor man at home. Down he sat back of the stove and began to chatter and talk and talk and chatter. And the upshot of the matter was that, bit by bit, he dragged out the whole story from the poor man. Then nothing would do but he must see the bowl and the crock at work. So the bowl and the crock were brought and set to work, and, hoy, how the rich brother opened his eyes when he saw them making good broth and beer of themselves, and now he must and would have that bowl and crock. At first the poor brother said no, but the other bargained and bargained until at last the poor man consented to let him have the two for a hundred dollars. So the rich brother paid down his hundred dollars, and off he marched with what he wanted. When the next day had come, the rich brother said to his wife, Never you mind about the dinner today. Go you into the harvest field, and I will see to the dinner. So off went the wife with the harvesters, and the husband stayed at home and smoked his pipe all the morning, for he knew that dinner would be ready at the bidding. So, when noontide had come, he took out the bowl and the crock, and, placing them on the table, said, Bowl be filled, crock be filled. And straight away they began making broth and beer as fast as they could. In a little while the bowl and the crock were filled, and then they could hold no more, so that the broth and beer ran down all over the table and the floor. Then the rich brother was in a pretty pickle, for he did not know how to bid the bowl and the crock to stop from making what they were making. Out he ran and across the street to the poor man's house, and meanwhile the broth and beer filled the whole room until it could hold it no more, and then ran out into the gutters, so that all the pigs and dogs in the town had a feast that day. Oh dear brother, cried the rich man to the poor man, do tell me what to do, or the whole town will soon be smothered in broth and beer. But no, the poor brother was not to be stirred in such haste. They would have to strike a bit of a bargain first. So the upshot of the matter was that the rich brother had to pay the poor brother another hundred dollars to take the crock and bowl back again. See now what comes of being covetous. As for the poor man, he was well off in the world, for he had all that he could eat and drink, and a stocking of money back of the stove besides. Well, time went along as time does, and now it was St. Christopher who was thinking about taking a little journey below. See, brother, said St. Nicholas to him, if you chance to be jogging by yonder town, stop at the poor man's house, for there you will have a warm welcome and plenty to eat. But when St. Christopher came to town, the rich man's house seemed so much larger and finer than the poor man's house that he thought that he would ask for lodging there. But it fared the same with him as it had with St. Nicholas. Prut! Did he think the rich man kept free lodgings for beggars? And bang! The door was slammed in his face, and off packed the saint with a flea in his ear. Over he went to the poor man's house, and there was a warm welcome for him, and good broth and beer from the bowl and the crock that St. Nicholas had blessed. After he had supped, he went to bed, where he slept as snug and warm as a mouse in the nest.
The End I would just like to take this opportunity to thank Derek and Anne for requesting the story of The Steadfast Tin Soldier by Hans Christian Andersen for this episode. If you would like to suggest a story for me to read on an episode, you can do so through my Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Martin Lovell.